0: We need to be here, we need the encouragement, the admonition, the discipline, and the instruction of your word. And this morning, some of us have walked strongly in that in this past week, and others of us have slipped and fallen and struggled. May we love one another and bear with one another. gird each other up. Spur each other on to good works and to faithfulness. To every person in this room, was intended to be here. This is your will, and you give us a hand in the labor. But we are here because we need to hear your word this morning. We needed words of encouragement from one another as you speak through other Christians. We needed the quiet and the calm from the buzz of the culture that just rips forward as fast as it can and leaves destruction in its path. And we find refuge this morning. We find it in your word, in your promises, in who you are, in how you loved us, how you chose us, how you to Calvary for us, and you bled out. You've opened your veins, and you've made the sacrifice, you've paid the cost, you brought us in, you gave us a kingdom with you. You made us slaves to righteousness and you gave us an eternal hope and a future with you. We praise you for your witness and your faithfulness this morning. I pray for the preaching of your word. I pray for Tim that you would remove any physical weakness in him this morning, any mental weakness that he would be able to boldly proclaim <coughs> what we need to hear. And then we would have ears to hear that, and we would engage our minds and our hearts in the discipline of learning, in the discipline of worship. I pray for all of the people present here today, that regardless of what we've gone through this past week, the struggles that we have right now, that your word would minister to our hearts. And it would reinforce lessons that we've learned before, or it would teach us afresh what we need to know to have proper perspective on this world. As we walk through relationships, and as we put things in proper perspective, that we have an eternal future, an eternal hope, and an eternal glory with you. May you give ten the words to speak, and give us the hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: It's fitting that we're talking about the resurrection today Because the God who resurrected Jesus from the dead And resurrected us from the dead Can even resurrect our finicky computer from the dead Um, Thank you, John, for laboring very frantically back there Trying to get everything up and running Uh, Praise the Lord for technology and hate it at the same time So um, So last week we looked at the first of three encounters with the religious sects within, within the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees, this week we're going to look at the Sadducees, and next week we'll look at the scribes. So last week was the super religious, the ones who upheld all the law and the law that they love so much they created hundreds more and uh, they wanted to challenge Jesus on paying taxes. So this week, it's the pseudo-religious, kind of the, the false religious ones, the, the, the Sadducees. We'll get into them more in, in a moment. Um, but both of them try to trap Jesus. And I want us to think about this morning, how often is this the goal of skeptics and non-believers? How can I say things in such a way? I know that these Christians, I know that this Jesus is false. I know that there's a weakness somewhere. I know that I can pull the rug out from underneath them. I just need to put together the right set of questions. I know this is a house of cards. And if I tug at the right string, everything will unravel. And so we must be prepared for this opposition. Because if they're going to do it to Jesus, how can we expect any different? And so often we're going to encounter people that try to ask us questions that they don't think we can answer. But sadly, in the modern church, I don't think many Christians can answer them. Why do you believe this? What is our proof for the resurrection? What is the doctrine of the resurrection? How can we have faith or hope in any of these things? So often, people ask Christians and Christians are blank. You know, there is a reason that the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and a lot of times the Muslims are so successful. Because they witness to people calling themselves Christians, but they don't know the scriptures. Their faith has never been been challenged. They've they've never been able to argue or answer argumentation. And so we must know what we believe. And also, like Jesus does here, learn how to show discernment when we are challenged. Not just automatically get on the defensive, but if you know the truth, you can stand boldly, you can stand confidently. And learn to spot error as Jesus does. So we're going to look at the error the false premises and the weak foundations that the Sadducees are working from. And if you realize that when you are confronted with error, it is usually based on some false premise or it is always based on some false foundation. You just take a step or two back and you can begin to unravel it as Jesus does. And so uh, the things that there are error related to are no greater, there's none greater than the resurrection. So here we're not going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus specifically. We're going to be talking about the final resurrection. But we must look at the resurrection of Jesus. And there's no more central doctrine to the Christian faith than that of the resurrection. There's uh, lots of ground to cover. And so uh, we're going to dive right in. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 27. And the Sadducees came to him. Who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother." There were seven brothers. The first took took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. We praise you, true and living God. You are life. There is no life apart from you physical or spiritual. You are a living God who makes living people to serve Him, to love Him, to be with Him. How awesome You are, how amazing Your plan is. Lord, I pray this morning that You root out any error within us. Any ways we are tempted to limit Your power, to distort your scriptures. Lord, convict your people and guide your people to be bearers of the truth, to be ambassadors for your kingdom. Let us stand firm on the word of God. Let us not shrink back from accusation or challenge, but let us, like our Savior, show wisdom and discernment, respond confidently and thoughtfully pointing to our hope in his resurrection. That we are reconciled to him and this is the only hope of mankind. We praise you, God, for the wisdom that we see in the Father. The work, the person of the Son, and the power of the Spirit that brings the dead to life. And gives us a beautiful picture of what it means to live. And the wonderful promise that we will live with you forever. In your glorious name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with the Sadducees. Where we start here in verse 18. And the Sadducees. I think it's like a common misconception that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are similar. Uh, or they're just, uh, they're just two groups that are in agreement. This could not be further from the truth. They could not be more different from one another. And uh, we mentioned last week within the Sanhedrin, there were different sects. There were there were different competing branches of Judaism. And so uh, these Sadducees, Josephus calls them the, the men of wealth and rank. These are these are men who had influence, who had money. Uh, they were they were typically the one who held the political power and had most interaction with, with Rome they were most closely associated with the priesthood. Typically, the high priest was, was going to come out of the, the, the Sanhedrin. So this gave them great cultural and religious influence. Um, and they were the majority members of the, of the Sanhedrin. So they, this gave them great political influence. So they were the, the puppet masters. They were pulling the strings. When we looked at Jesus clearing the temple a few weeks ago, it was they who controlled who came and, and went, who bought and who sold. If it was on anyone, when Jesus turned over the tables and condemned those wicked actions and the robbers, they felt it the hardest because they had the final say in that. And so they were very much concerned with law and order to their own benefit. And so you can also think of them as ultra conservative theologically. They're the anti-spiritualist party. And so I want to look at some of the major differences really quick because it's interesting that the only time these two groups come together, they hate each other the rest of the time. They only come together with one common enemy. When they, they only come together for Jesus. So look at the Pharisees. They emphasize divine sovereignty. They believe in angels and demons and spirits. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in the afterlife. They believe in all of the, the spiritual components of the Judaistic life. They also held to the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures. Not just the law, but also the prophets and the writings. In addition, they, believed to the oral, they held to the oral tradition. So they had, they had a, an expanded canon. The Sadducees, on the other side, emphasized the free will of man. They emphasized the, the here and now. They did not believe in any spirits. No angels, no demons. No afterlife, no resurrection. And they only held to the Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Bible. They only held to the law of Moses. Anything after that was helpful but not authoritative. So this is, this is very important. Remember those details as we get into this, this interaction. And so I got a little trick in case, you, in case you forget how to tell the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees have no hope after death. That's why they're sad, you see? <laughs> Hopefully it'll stick in your head like it sticks in mine. So, if you only believe in the, 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 the books of Moses, it's not surprising that you will struggle with the, the concept of afterlife and the, and, and the resurrection. Um, because the Old Testament never explicitly describes the resurrection like we get in the New Testament. But there are mentions to it and allusions to it. I mean, probably the most vivid is Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Um... Where God calls Ezekiel out and, and says, prophesy. And he sees all these, these bones that are, dry, that, dr- that are dried up. There is no breath. There is no flesh. And he prophesies. And God begins to knit ligament and, and uh, flesh and, and uh, air into the lungs. And he says, this is the nation of Israel. And I will bring you to new life. So they don't hold to the prophets. Probably uh, the, the most clear is in Isaiah 26. And uh, I think all of our slides are working, so it'll be up on the screen. Uh, I got a lot of references today, Ethan, so we're just going to move through these quickly. Uh, Isaiah twenty-six, nineteen: Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, we don't know the, now they didn't know the context of this. They didn't know when this would happen, but this is the promise of God. I am the God who has power over death. The great equalizer is nothing to me. The earth will give back their dead. This is one of the many future promises we see in Isaiah. So the resurrection is going to be our main theme this morning, but you can't escape the context of this conversation without the Sadducees. The interesting thing is that the Sadducees are only mentioned one time in all of Mark. This is it. While the Pharisees are more prevalent in the Gospels, their attack is to Jesus directly. Because he threatens their, 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 their authority. Um, the Sadducees had a couple pet issues. Where you see the Sadducees come up as an axe. The Sadducees are the main ones who confront the apostles in Acts. Why is that? Because if you read through Acts, every sermon in Acts, the central theme of the sermon is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of new life in him. So I want you to... It, we're we're going to flesh this out a little bit with the details in Acts. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to Acts chapter 4. There is one in front of you. I got some references on the screen. The ones I want to move through quickly. But the ones I want to spend a moment on. They're going to. We're going to turn there ourselves. Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people. Listen. To these, these, these three groups here. The priests. The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Look at the bedfellows here. The priests associated with the Sadducees, the captains of the temple. These are the ones who kept order in the temple and the Sadducees. They come and what is their main gripe here? They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is their problem, that they're proclaiming the resurrection. All these Jewish leaders coming together against the apostles. And Peter gives this great sermon. And uh, they're they're upset after they they, uh, healed someone. But look at Peter's response, skipping down to verse 8. This is what an apostolic sermon looks like. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. He's addressing the Sadducees here. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that which rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is no salvation and no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For men whose entire identity is rooted in this life, the here and now, to have these apostles stand in their face and proclaim Jesus resurrected and proclaim salvation in him. The battle lines have been drawn. Paul is very wise. Look at Acts chapter 23. He digs into this this conflict when he's uh, being examined before the council and he's a little further from home and they're not familiar with a lot of the debates within within Galilee. So this is Acts 23, pick up in verse uh, six. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? Hopefully this gives you a picture of the tension within Jesus's day and into the time of the apostles. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not like one another. And at the center was what is the nature of the Jewish faith? Is it just this life and here and now? And then we go on to oblivion. Or is there a resurrection from the dead? Is there a life to come? And so, you know, before we go on to the rest of the text. I want us to think about the Sadducees for a moment. You know, how often we struggle with things we can't reconcile. The things that don't make sense to us. And if it doesn't make sense in our brain, we can't accept it. Well, how could there possibly be a life after death? How could there possibly be this or that? I think it's important for us to examine before we start judging the Sadducees. How often do we make God so small that we can cram him into our heads? How often are we guilty of holding on to the parts of scripture we like and ignoring other ones? Emphasizing heavily the ones that fit our needs and ignoring what challenges our weaknesses. And so whether it's election where you struggle with God's divine purview, God's divine choice over one nation or one people over another, And you're angry. Or you want to just throw that out because the God I've made in my own making would never do that. Or maybe it's salvation in general. How could God save a sinner like me? How could God forgive me? Or how could God forgive them? You see what they've done? How is this even possible at all? I must bring something of myself to the table. We have all had one of these conversations with God In our own minds Or maybe we understand salvation And yes I trust you for eternity But I struggle with trusting you for provision I trust that you can save me from hell But not from the power company Or put food in my refrigerator Or bring me through this difficult season Or this difficult relationship Maybe we struggle with the inspiration of scripture I know it's good. I know I should read my Bible, but I'm going to still be cautious. I don't know if I can trust what it says. I don't know if I can believe it on its on its face because my experience tells me differently. And then you've got the resurrection, which is where we separate from many cults and false religions who take who take and steal parts of Christianity yet, yet deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ And so being honest with ourselves It is only a childlike faith that can accept these things this is, These are difficult Election is not easy, salvation is not easy But a childlike faith accepts and, and, and believes Because it's wonderful and it's beautiful It's only stuffy, cynical adults Who've had years and years and years of being disappointed Who begin to doubt these things because everything else in our life has let us down. The gospel must let us down too. God can't possibly be this good. He can't possibly be this forgiving. So we become like the Sadducees with this very limited view of what God can do and his power and the spiritual nature of things. We, we prefer the concrete and the things that we can see and touch. We feel like this is what we can depend on. And I think every one of us has wrestled with these and... And should take account in our minds and our hearts. And, and be careful we're not uh, uh, guilty of the same errors. So now we're going to get into the story that they concoct. This kind of hypothetical situation with the three brothers. So I'm going to read over it. And I'm just going to give you a quick view of what's going on here. They say in, in their question, verse 19, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Now, if you're just reading this for the first time, you don't know the cross-reference. You're like, this is a weird custom. This is a strange question to ask. But they're smart. They're very crafty in this. So let me explain what's going on here. So, so this is not really a question about marriage at all. They are trying to solve this debate between them and the Pharisees, and they think they're going to trap Jesus. They are working on the Pharisees' assumptions because these two groups argue back and forth all the time. The Pharisees had a view that the afterlife mirrored this life just, a li- just slightly better. Everything you do here, you'll do in the afterlife. You'll, you'll, you'll still be married. You'll, you'll, you'll still have your, your home and your interactions. It's just going to be better. And so they were working on that assumption. They think they're, they're going to trip Jesus up here. So they're, they're hoping to catch two birds with one stone. They're hoping to win their, their, their argument with the Pharisees, show how foolish they are, and catch Jesus in their, in their, their trap. And so, um, you know, good thing this doesn't happen anymore. Good thing our theological camps agree on everything, and no one is trying to trip up the other one and win the argument. We're so much more civil now. So, what they're referring to here is level right marriage. This will be on the screen. This is Deuteronomy 25. Those of you who are not laughing have never been in a theological debate. Um, Deuteronomy 25, this is what they're referencing. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. That's the first important point. There is concern within the family. This is protection and and, and provision for the wife of my brother. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Someone's got to do it. Verse 6. Uh, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out for Israel, so this is a protection that their brother 's name and legacy be be remembered. This is not some hypothetical situation to so see you can win a, a resurrection debate. This is concern for women in Israel. this is concern for, for for families because your your name and your legacy meant everything, and we probably see this Played out most famously in Ruth, where Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, where this Moabite woman who has no inheritance is is brought in under his protection and into his home. And she is given a name and out of her comes David and out of her comes comes Jesus. This 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 beautiful picture of a kinsman who redeems a family member so that her her honor and, and her children are protected. And so just in case you thought this was a far ranging example, and there is no uh, contemporary equivalent to this, this, no joke, this providentially, when you're like scrolling through weird stories, this is a true story in India. Last week, there is a bride-to-be uh, who is standing at the altar. And if you've ever seen an Indian wedding, I've never been to one, but they all look like a Bollywood video. It's like there's, you know, there's, there's decorations all over the place and there's shouting and dancing, and it's a, and it's a, big, it's a big deal. So she falls faint and dies at the altar. No joke. And they, they bring her to the hospital, confirm that she's dead, but because of their rituals of cremation, they bring her back home so they can do all the, the ceremonial things to her body. So the wedding guests are still there. She's in the next room and the elders start talking. So all these people are here and we've got all the, the wedding preparations made. So they make a proposal to the groom well, she's got a single sister. So he asks her parents permission to be married to her sister. No joke. She is her sister is dead in the next room. And they go through with the ceremony of the groom and and the younger sister on the same day, a wedding and a funeral in the same house on the same day. Um, yeah, we might as well. So. But this is weird to us, but not in Eastern culture. I mean, they're still holding to the same tradition. These are arranged marriages where you are. You have two families coming together for this arrangement, for this, this, this mutual benefit. You know, the dowry's already been paid. Everybody's already here. We might as well have a wedding. There's another single girl right here. And so it's, it's really interesting listening to the interviews of the, the, the brothers and sisters about how surreal this is, that they're mourning their sister yet... Celebrating their other sister's wedding. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. It is, it's one of the few times I will use a story that has nothing to do with the, uh, the, the text. But I figured I had a connection. So what I want you to see here with the, the Sadducees, here's the question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now this statement is made in disbelief. They do not believe in the resurrection. But they're saying this to go Jesus. In the resurrection. They want to show how ridiculous the resurrection is. Because it would make the Leverite marriage law of Moses seem foolish. Well she can't possibly be married to all seven of these. Who's she going to be be married to? They're they're working on the Pharisees assumption. that, That marriage is a major part of the afterlife. But. Like their counterparts and like always happens, people underestimate Jesus and they're working from this flawed understanding. So here they are. They think that they've trapped Jesus. They're like, you know, riddle me this one, Batman, like figure this out. Look how Jesus responds. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Imagine crafting this whole what if situation, and Jesus shuts them down in the hardest way possible. I'm gonna keep my Looney Tunes train running. This is like with Sammy Sam, like them fighting words. Like, like this is this is not. I can't look at you, David, when you're laughing like that. Uh, uh, this this is this is not polite conversation. This is not you know nice reserved Jesus. You're idiots. The Greek is even stronger here. It's, is this not? Is this not? Is it not because of this that you've gone astray? Um, fascinating Greek word here. Planao. It's from, it's from where we get planet. It means to wander. Like they, they viewed planets as wandering in space. Wander turn into being led astray. Turn into being deceived. You are like a planet wandering in space. You're not. You're not rooted to anything. You are so deceived. You're way out there. That's a, that's, the, that's the language of the original. This is not. A compliment. You don't understand the resurrection conceptually or doctrinally. This is why you are wrong. And even before addressing their question, he challenges their understanding and really their identity as Jews. There is no greater jab to a Jew than you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. This is a challenge to who they are. It's like telling a chef, you don't know the kitchen and you don't know food. It's like, what do you do with that? You can't talk about marriage. Because you don't understand the resurrection. You can't talk about the resurrection because you don't understand God. You make God impotent because you limit the scriptures to your own interpretation. You deny the rest of God's revelation. And so you do not know the power of God. This is what's going on here. That's why you don't believe in the resurrection. And so sometimes a great lesson we can learn from Jesus. Sometimes you just call error what it is. Those who are self-righteous and those who are standing on their own laurels. And those who are crafting all this beat around the bush way of of, of trying to trap you. Like you're fools. You don't know the truth because you don't know God. And so before we get into Jesus' response... How many errors come out of not knowing the Bible or knowing the power of God? How many errors come out of limiting scripture, making entire theologies over several verses? You you think of the error on one side or the other. The error on, on one side is that if you have all scripture and no power, you have dead orthodoxy. You have all power and no, and, and no scripture. You've just got chaotic spiritualism. You must need, you, you need the word of God and the power of God. We had a great conversation about this yesterday and Noah brought up a really good point. That if you start with a false premise, if you start with a, with a weak foundation, everything else falls apart. And so typically what we do is we're responding to the last thing someone says. What Jesus does, he takes it all the way back to the beginning. You don't know God and you don't know the scriptures. If you start with a faulty premise, if you start with a weak foundation, everything else is a house of cards. It will fall apart. I mean, think about this. If you don't understand the basics, nothing works. Those of you who like math, good for you. But if you start with, a, a, if, if you start with the wrong equation at the beginning, everything else falls apart. If you're going to build and you don't start the foundation right. If you're worried about the curtains and you haven't even, you haven't even poured concrete yet, your house is gonna be a mess in a couple years. Think about it, any, anything else like this. Education, if you don't begin with the simple things, if you can't get the basics right, everything else falls apart. They are building their house on a foundation of sand because they didn't understand the foundation. Another great example from yesterday, and I got Ethan's permission to use this. Uh, We were playing chess in a massive chess set. And so it's a little weird because if you're used to playing on a computer or small pieces, it's kind of weird getting getting a a, a lay of the land and figuring out where the the pieces are. So the first game did not go too well for Ethan um, because he was not familiar with the pieces. Second game, he did much better. Um, But if you don't start with the foundation of... I don't even know how, the, how these pieces work. I don't even know how to, how to make sense of this, of this new board. Without that basic foundation, everything else falls apart. And so this is what Jesus is, is getting at. Before we can talk about these, these minor issues, you must understand the basis, the scriptures and the power of God. Because if you have no scriptures and no power of God, you are dead. You are a dead religion with no hope. And that is who Jesus is addressing here. And so when he responds to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, here he is declaring that they're going to rise. He is confident in the resurrection. They will neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so there's a great application yesterday. This is the biblical language. Men marry. Women are given in marriage. And this is a beautiful thing. We saw this with with Sam and and, and Hannah yesterday. Everyone celebrated. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. But this is a thing for for this life. This is a, a placeholder for the much more glorious marriage that is to come. And so men and women will marry and be given in marriage in this life. But don't make the faulty assumption that there's a a one-to-one equivalent here. They fail to see the the, the greater glorified nature of the resurrection. What they're doing is assuming, oh, I know what marriage looks like. Then in the next life, everything must be the same. Marriage must be the same. Work must be the same. But maybe a little bit better. This is like trying to explain a butterfly to someone who's only ever seen a caterpillar. They're like, wait, after this comes this this creature with with wings, and it's got beautiful colors, and it flies. You're like, that slug with legs is going to fly? You you can't picture a butterfly if you've only ever seen a caterpillar. This is what Jesus is is talking to. The same thing happens with us before Christ. We can't picture what it'd be like to live in Christ because we only know what's in front of us. We're we're caterpillars, munching along, you know, one Bite after another. But until our eyes are open, and until this process happens where we come out of our cocoon and we are brought to new life, this is all foreign to us. And in a way, even with eyes to see in Christ right now, the life to come is a mystery to us. We still wonder about these things because even right now, we our eyes are open, we see Christ, we have the fullness of his revelation, we still have no idea what it's gonna be like in glory. And Jesus gives us this, this beautiful little glimpse. Because we still love to have these, these conversations. It's at least once a week that someone's like, you think we'll have bacon in glory? You, yesterday we were talking about how the, how the air is going to be sweeter in glory. Only Ethan would come up with that. But, <laughs> but everything is going to be better and yet so much better than anything our imagination can come up with. But The most beautiful part is the new picture of marriage. The intimacy that is meant for man and woman here. The closeness of knowing someone almost as well as you know yourself. And knowing someone who knows you better than you know yourself. That intimacy that only can happen between a husband and a wife. That will be the intimacy we have with Jesus. And that will be the intimacy that we have with one another. We are united to one another. And this this is why when we begin to lament about maybe losing a spouse. That well, what I'm not going to be married. Yes. If you are in Christ, you'll be married to all the sins. There will be an intimacy and a love for one another that we can can't even grasp here. And if you're single, this is great news. It's only temporary. Because our marriages will be replaced with a union among the saints that we try to do here. We try in the body to love one another well and serve one another well and be involved in one another's lives. But imagine for eternity, for for glory, we will perfectly serve and love one another as we worship Christ together because we are his and united to him. That's why Jesus can say what he's saying. And that's why this picture of angels is so beautiful. You know, in, in a wedding I'm sure I have no firsthand knowledge, but I'm sure that a bride feels like an angel for a moment. All eyes are on her. It's this beautiful white gown. But for eternity, we will feel like angels every moment. Not disembodied spirits on clouds, but glorious, shining beings surrounding the throne of God and singing his praises, basking in his glory, reflecting him perfectly. That is what it means that we are going to be like angels. And this should be an encouragement to us. Even if we don't know all the details, Jesus gives us this little amazing glimpse. And should stir our affections and our anticipations for being with him. And there are so many implications to this. But know that if you are in Christ, you are destined for glory. If your marriage is beautiful now, what you have in eternity will be so much more beautiful. If your marriage is tough right now. God has a design that we would be united to all the saints. And that we would see marriage as it would rightly be. And we can take our hope in the life to come. This is probably why the Sadducees are so grumpy. Because they don't have any of this. So, he addresses their 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 premise like you're not even in the right understanding but he does something else here that's also helpful verse 26 and as for the dead being raised you have not excuse me have you not read in the book of moses in the passage about the bush how god spoke to him so this is important jesus addresses their faulty premise first and now he addresses the dead are going to rise but in order to understand the resurrection, you have to understand the nature of God himself. You have to understand God's covenantal nature. And he does something brilliant here. Notice where he quotes from. Could have taken them to Ezekiel. Could have taken them to Isaiah. Could have taken them to the resurrections of Elijah and Elisha. But he takes them back to Exodus. They appeal to the book of Moses. He responds in the book of Moses. You gonna have a limited view of scripture. I can refute you from any book of the Bible. Remember in the book of Moses, the story of the bush. They didn't have chapters and verses then. You know the story of the bush. Most of you should know the story of the bush. God appears in this flaming bush. Tells Moses this is holy ground and declares who he is. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Notice notice what's amazing here. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He uses the present tense for men who've been dead for hundreds of years. I am right now. I am their God. They're not in Sheol. They're not in oblivion. I know them right now. They know me. This is not new either. Jesus used this practice. Look at Matthew eight 11. It'll be up on the screen. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is looking forward. John 8, 56. Jesus is looking back. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now. Let's start from the scriptures. You want to quote Exodus? I'll show you Exodus and how you don't understand me or my covenant with my people at all. I am shows God's unchanging nature and his and his relationship with his people. You are thinking too small. This is not back then. And this is now. I am. I do not change. And if I covenant with you, I covenant forever. I did not create you for partial relationships. I created you to be mine, and I will keep you, and I will preserve you, and you will be mine forever. That's why when Jesus finishes, this is the final nail in the theological coffin. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. I love how Cherie said earlier. He is the living God, and he is the God of the living. Amen to that. This is why we do not fear death. This is why we have hope. Because if God is alive and we are in Christ We are alive. This would be a great encouragement and assurance for us. So what he's saying to them, if you understood the power of God over death, if you understand how much God loves his people, if you understood that God would not let death reign over his people, then resurrection is easy. Resurrection is an easy next step. I want to look at Ephesians 2, where now we bring our resurrection. Through the resurrection of Christ, where Paul declares, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated with him. You know what it means to be like the angels. You are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is what it means. He is the God of the living. In Christ, you are alive. This age and the age to come. So then he comes down hard. You are quite wrong. Using planao again. You're off base. You're not even the right solar system. And he ends where he began. you got to get on track. You've been so deceived. Until you understand understand the scriptures and understand the power of God, you will continue to be wrong. So I want to end with a couple of uh, resurrection passages that will be helpful for us. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And I think his exchange in John 11 when he's talking to Lazarus's sisters about his death. Helps bring together the, their understanding and Jesus' declaration. So you know Jesus loved Lazarus and Lazarus died and Jesus wept over him and he brought him back to new life. But his, his interchange with Martha is really helpful here. So John 11 beginning in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And it's great faith. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Listen to what she says. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The only way you can look to the last day is if you look to me first. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, who has come into the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that in Christ, death has no reign over you? Do you believe that in Christ, if you believe in him, you arise rise Raise you up to new life. He is the resurrection and the life. So when we meet skeptics. When we meet doubters. When we meet people who attack us for our faith. It is not your ability to circumvent their their questions. It is only your duty to point them to the resurrection and the life. And it is only through him. That they will never die. Without faith this is foolishness. With faith, this is glorious. He is our hope. He is our resurrection. He is our life. This is simple. Many of you have heard this. But we are weak creatures, doubtful creatures. We need to hear this again and again and again and again. We will never stop beating this drum until we hear trumpets. Last two passages I want to look at. John 5. Since you're still in John, turn to chapter 5. This, in a very short passage, helps us understand the nature of resurrection. Jesus Jesus will explain the first resurrection and the second resurrection. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. This is the already. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is what Revelation speaks of as the first resurrection. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in him. So there's a spiritual resurrection now. In a figurative sense, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins will be raised to new life in Christ. Why? Because they hear the voice of the Son of God. That son, his authority, verse 27, because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this. Don't get stuck here because there's something else coming. An hour is coming. You've got the already, now the not yet. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, this refers to bodies, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Scripture speaks of two resurrections. One, a a, a spiritual where your wicked, depraved soul comes to new life and believes there will be a day when all bodies will be resurrected that second resurrection has no hold over those who have come to the first resurrection is what Revelation 20 verse 6 says blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection the spiritual resurrection over such the second death has no power there is a first death death and taxes as Jonathan said last week Gets all of us. We're all going to die unless Jesus returns first. That is inevitable, but there's a second death. There is a perpetual death. There's a death apart from the grace of God that is torment forever. If you are part of the first resurrection, where you've been brought to new life, the second death has no power. And if you are part of the first resurrection, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is also what it means to be like the angels. We are kings and priests to God. The question of how or when is not most important. What is most important is that we will. That we will rise with Christ if our faith is in him. If we are in Christ, it doesn't matter what type of body we have. It doesn't matter how marriage works. We will be with Jesus forever. We can sort all the details out later. And so here's how I want us to respond with this. I want to close in 1 Corinthians 15. We opened with it. Uh, I will never say it as well or as eloquently or as exhaustively as Paul does. But I want to do something we don't normally do. Because tendency when you read a long passage like this is to not offer to do something else. So I want you to stand for the reading of God's word. There's going to be no comment. I'm just going to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. And see how Paul addresses everything that we talked about today. And as I read this, prepare your hearts and your minds to approach the Lord's table. Beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you, show, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. To each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans. Another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earth is of another. There is one glory for the sun and another glory for the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You may be seated. Take a few minutes before the Lord prepare your hearts and minds to approach the table. Heavenly Father, I pray that as your people prepare to approach this table, that they believe those words. That we have died to ourselves. That we have left behind the old man, the perishable. We have taken on the imperishable through the righteousness and perfect work of Jesus Christ. That when we approach this table, we are participating in his person and in his work his body given for us, his blood covering us. That this may embolden your people and give us confidence that anyone in this room who is trusting in themselves for their own salvation, who doubts your resurrection, who doubts your word, who doubts your power, who has faith in something else, may they be terrified of the second death But for those of us in the first resurrection who look forward to the second, this is a beautiful reminder of the consummation, the marriage of Christ and his saints that is better than anything we have here on earth. Lord, encourage your church, empower your church through the means of grace of the preaching, the means of grace of the table, means of grace of the fellowship and intercession of the saints that we might endure faithfully until you return. That our labor would not be in vain because death has no hold on us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul speaks to the church, a church divided A church in strife and in difficulty. He encourages them with this exhortation in chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. This is what we are doing this morning. We are coming together as the body of Christ. You are members here, you are members of the body of Christ anywhere we approach this table together as one body, one bread, one cup. When you are ready, you can come along the outsides. The deacons will serve you and you will hear blood of Christ shed for you, body of Christ given for you. You will take it back to your seats and we will take together. This is for members of the body of Christ. If you heard this sermon and you know that you are resurrected to new life. This is a beloved reminder of what has happened in you and a beloved promise of what awaits you. Parents, we give you discretion for your children, but if you are not, we ask that you remain in your seat, but do not leave your seat until you surrender your soul to the one who judges all. When you're ready, you can come up. Oh, there will be wine along the outer rims, juice in the middle. There is a gluten-free option in the middle for those who need it. You'll take one cup, one piece of bread, and bring it back to your seats.